thank you so much. I really appreciate you joining me. And it took a lot for Carla to set this up. And I appreciate all that she did. I'm a longtime fan. And I read your book. It touched me in such ways. I can't even begin to tell you. It made me really reflect on my own life. You know, our generation, we did certain things. We grew up in the 60s and the 70s. So I'm, I'm right along there with you. It means a lot to have, um, to have you say a, very, a personal thing to me. So thank you. Thanks for saying uh, that. You're welcome. It was just an amazing book and it brought tears to my eyes. One thing that I thought about was what made Ricky Lee Jones, Ricky Lee Jones. And I thought about what you had said in the book about your parents being the bookends to your momentum and your career. Mm-hmm. And sure. how, you know, your mother was in an orphanage, your, your father has vaudeville background. No matter how, um, you know, when we compare our families to one another, some families seem more solid, safer, kinder. But our incredible capacity as children to make reality out of just a few fragments is what the book is really about. So even though a mother had this strength and these many weaknesses and same for father, I made them into mythology. I made them as strong as I needed them to be in order to be a big tree one day. And not everybody in the family was able to do that. Because they weren't able to do that, I recognized that I was. If we had all succeeded or all failed, I wouldn't be able to see myself reflected. And um, I often wonder why is there so much tragedy in my family? It was hard, but come on. Um, but not everybody has the capacity to make um you know, beautiful things out of terrible events. And in my personality, I think those are the very first two pillars of building is is that mother will take care of business and father's always dreaming. And that's that's the root of me. I'm always dreaming and I'll take care of it. Yeah, well, I noticed also in the book, you had this one teacher, um, Mr. Carter, Ah. who didn't want you to daydream. (laughs) Yeah, it wasn't daydreaming. He took that drop your pencils at four o'clock. He took that personally. Like, how could you, first of all, how could you manhandle a girl or a child? And then, you know, why would you be so upset about that little game? He just, he wanted such absolute control that um, that was so abusive when he did. That little bit of power, people that have a little bit of power can be very dangerous. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Also, I wondered how you managed to stay focused on music. When I think of all the times you were just dropped on the side of the road, it seemed like every time I turned around, it was like, oh, my God, there's another group of people just leaving her on the side of the road in California. How did you survive? You know, I think music, it's its not that I stayed focused on it. It was my rescuer. It's the wave. It's there ever. It's ever there for me to turn to when I am on the side of the road. A little song comes into my head and I sing it as I walk from here to there. It's just my constant companion. Yeah. yeah. I re-listened to the song After Hours. Uh-huh. It, had, it had such a different meaning for me. And so here you are with this lamppost and everybody's just gone. And 
and there you are on the side of the road. This is so wonderful to hear, you know, if the book helped you under, you know, when I wrote stuff, I just somehow thought everybody would understand. They could look at me and see who I am, but that's not true at all. Everybody makes up their own idea. Right. So uh, after you read the book and and you say you understand more, that's really all I could have hoped for. That's really. (laughs) Yeah. And Ghost Train is by far one of my favorite songs and it had different meanings. For me, it, first, it would remind me of me and, and being thankful that I'm alive. And then my son passed away from a drug overdose, and it took on a whole new meaning for me. Then seeing it in relation to you and your life, it's such an amazing song. Yeah. And but when you take drugs, there are so many close calls with this. And if you're lucky enough to come back um, and get off the bus before, you know, you can't get off the bus. Yeah. And I had a few of those myself. Yeah. You'd also talked about when you recorded uh, Ben on a Train uh-huh. and, and you weren't happy with it. Did you write Ghost Train after you recorded Ben on a Train? Because it seems like such a great answer to that song. I don't, I don't think so. I think... Um, Ghost Train was written in England in um, early on for before anything for Flying Cowboys. So um, I think probably Ghost Train was first. Cheryl, I, I'm sorry about your son. I, I, oh, oh, thank you. It's it's been a while, so yeah, it's, it's kind of well, it's not okay, but it's a you know. It's always preceded by so much trouble uh, when the end comes. Um, but I still want to acknowledge it. Oh, thank you. I, re- I really appreciate that. There's nothing like losing a child. God, I'm sorry. Your thing It's trying to switch to the ear pods. Hold on. What are you doing? <laughs> Technology. <laughs> I know. We're not, we're not, it's not natural to have to <laughs> deal with technology. And the other song I like so much is Skeletons. Yeah. And you wrote that when nobody was writing about that subject. And you know what I love about skeletons is it's just understood. I'm, I'm not trying to make the point. And um, I'm telling a very personal story this woman's grief and sorrow. And um, that was most important to me. You know, if I would have indicated what race anybody was in the text, people would have not been able to experience the song. Maybe in some ways it would have been better, but I just wanted you to go, here's what it's like to wake up the next day after you've lost everything. And, um, you know, the, the, the cops killing him, it, it just seemed obvious to me that, uh, that he was black, but it didn't really matter. He could be, yeah. he could be anything. Right. I do want you to know, too, that I was in a writing class and that lyric was used by the teacher. Oh, wonderful. One of his favorite pieces. And he happens to be a professor of poetry and lyric writing at Berkeley College of Music. The other thing when I was reading and you were in the studio for the first time and the pain that you felt because you couldn't communicate to those session musicians in a way that you could hear it in your head and feel it. Did you then teach yourself theory after that? Or what did you do in the years to come? 
You know, I had taken a theory class in college, but I just couldn't understand it. I would have needed a really strong rudimentary understanding of a keyboard in order to take that class. And um, so the answer is no. But through many years of experience, I have, a, 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 you know, I had a really rudimentary, you know, here's a C note and stuff. But musicians who come to me, just seem to be the most generous of people. So I'm able to sing to them what I want and they'll write it down. They'll take the time to do it and create. Yeah, so that still goes on today. I didn't, um, they were generous then, but I was so um, uneducated that I really didn't know how to say half, you know, at half the bar do this. I didn't know, understand a bar yet, even though I understood it, you know, yeah. instinctually. Well, it was not, it was like innate for you. It was just, it was just coming out of you, you know, and, and you know, that a lot of the best musicians were like that. I mean, Louis Armstrong. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. No. So a little bit of uh, not, you know, some people feel that this kind of ability of, of a natural gift with music is hindered by education. Um, because education requires you to put it in this form. And if once you know that's the correct form, it's very hard to defy it. Whereas if you don't know it, you'll try new, you know, genius is defying what knowledge. But but if you don't know it, then you know. So I think I was lucky to not know it. And so I'd write horn parts that were a little odd, not what the horn guy would have written, but but they were just fine, yeah. So. I think that's what makes it unique and freer because I think once you get that structure, that rudimentary structure, it's hard for people that learn on that page to get out of that box. Yes. They can't, they can't go off the page. I, I found when I would improvise and then speak with somebody who was a trained singer, they'd say improvising scares them. So I think that really holds it true. It scares everybody. It's the most yeah. courageous thing you can do, you know, is trust that you're going to know exactly where to go. And it's a reflection of a lifestyle. That's what's so great is that once I begin, I, I work with great musicians, but some of them, cannot improvise and uh, I so I really try to encourage believe that you know you know you've played this all your life you'll know where to go and go and there is no mistake if you go to a new key go down that road (laughs) (laughs) just just do it (laughs) just do it I just feel so all over the place because there's there's just so much to ask you you know and um, I was just thinking about what you said you know fear is is the great killer of innovation and um when we can live a life where we go so when you're on stage you, you most people probably go this is about me doing my best so you'll like me and you but if you reverse it and go this is about me loving them they've paid money and traveled to be with me i don't have to win them they've already come all they seek is love so if you stand on the stage and go, everything I do is to tell you that I love you, 
then you've taken your ego out of the event. You've taken the idea of it being a race or a contest. And you've just gone, we get to have this hour together, you and me. And I am going to give you all the love. Because the other way is going, I hope you guys love me. And they'll never be, there will never be satisfaction. So you got to love them enough to, to understand that they already love you. And uh, that, that part of the test is over. And I, I like to tell as many people this as I can, because if, if musicians who are very good, like Carney Simon, but they suffer stage fright so debilitating that they can't perform. I think that's really a great mindset to have. That's a great way of looking at it. I also loved your leprechaun story. Yeah. <laughs> I, I totally believe that. that <laughs> what a life I've lived. And there are other stories I left out, but the, what a life. Man. You were in the same room with Jimi Hendrix, like two feet away. And he was outdoors in the fog. Yeah. Um, and there's a photo on the internet that I always thought was me. You know, it looked, <laughs> it's right by the edge of the stage going like this. And I contacted the photographer and he said, no, that's me. And I was like, well, how did you take a picture of yourself? But even if it's not me, that's exactly where I was. May as well think it's you. It's, they're yeah. wrong. <laughs> that's right. The session musicians that embraced you, did you feel a part of the boys club? I mean, you were doing things in the other... Ever. I've never no. felt part of the boys club, no. That's so sad. I can't picture that with somebody of your caliber. Well, there's an unfortunate documentary called The Other Side of Desire. And about 30 minutes in, you can see how the boys treated me even six or seven years ago. It's just like being in the deep south and having the wrong skin color. You know, they don't even know they do it. And yeah. uh, it, it, it's, it's, it can be hard. But also then, you know, there are great people like Mike Dillon who walk in with such reverence and respect. But, you know, if people don't know who I am and I'm in the studio with him, you'll see young bucks talking to me like I'm a girl singer, you know. Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> Got it corrected. That's all. It's sad that you would think in 2020 it would be different. But I sometimes I don't feel like the women's movement movement's done anything. Well, it didn't, it, it didn't penetrate. I just think this new generation has a chance to not have any of those shackles, you know. But every time we use that double standard in sex and all those things, they have such a, a long percussive echo into society. We think it's not much, but it is. And I have a, I, I have a boyfriend who just has no idea what a girl's experience is growing up. He doesn't see how unequal it is yeah. and how deeply affecting that is. Um, so it's hard to educate educated people who've already decided that um, it's equal enough. Uh, you, you don't have any idea the intimidation that we endure in every step we take. We walk out our door, we got to look left and right to see who's on right. the show, you know. So. Yeah. Yeah, I know that's really true. Um, I know that we probably 
don't have much more time, but if you wanted to talk about your tour. Okay, um, I'm doing three weeks. And um, the first week or two, I'm I'm a trio with uh, Kai Welch, who's a multi-instrumentalist and singer, guitar player, pianist, and Mike Dillon, who's a vibraphonist and a record, record guy, makes his own records in some right. And so um, we do a, a nice assortment from the whole catalog and we we're having a really good time then around the 16th which i don't know if this helps you at all but my bass player <laughs> join us it helps me <laughs> and it's yeah and it's he's coming you know i haven't worked with a bass player in 10 years so it's very exciting to have um have him and then we're we've only got a few shows and we're done no more shows but i think it's going to be uh really fun for the first yeah. time in a long time to play i'm going on march 11th to um hartford so you might see me <laughs> all right <laughs> you know i'm um, so lucky to play these dates because they've kept me working my whole life you know the, uh, massachusetts and connecticut and that area i'm i'm so grateful for old Soulbrook and all these uh the cape these places that keep folks working i had seen you at the um jonathan edwards winery in the uh, oh. couple of summers ago that was now where was that it was in connecticut I remember that game. yeah it was connecticut it was out in this winery it was in uh -huh. the vineyard and it was up oh my god it was in the northeastern side of connecticut i think near the casino somewhere or another was it a That's good show was it an okay show yeah, it was great. It was uh, right after, I think it was right after your album came out. Kick. The Other Side of Desire? No, Kick. What I loved about it was there was, you know, you know, when you do these outside venues, and of course it's a vineyard, so people are drinking, and there, there were these loud people up in the back, and you just, you were so nice, but you asked them pretty much, please be quiet, <laughs> you know, yeah. and I was like, so glad that you said that, because they were annoying me. I'm sure they were annoying everybody else. And that's, that's a hard call. You know, when I was a kid, I would have, I would have been much more uh, gruff with them. But it's, it, they don't realize they're disturbing other people, as well as the artists that they paid money to come and see. So it's hard. It's as I've gotten yeah. older, I've been less inclined to bark. I would have barked for you. <laughs> so I'm going to have to see if you're going to be in Connecticut with the bass player, too. I, I love bass players. I think he comes, um, you know, probably the 12th, 13th. We might uh, let's get him out there for that one. God damn it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I'm just really looking forward to this. And and I was looking at your schedule and I thought, you must get dizzy. You go up to Massachusetts and you go to Connecticut, then you go to New York, then you go to back to Massachusetts and Pennsylvania, then you're back to Connecticut. How do you do it? Yeah, I think once I get out there, I just turn a switch. It's not the person yeah. in here. It's uh, some other. Yeah. Now, do you, do you go on a bus or do you fly? Sometimes I'm, I think at this one, we're just driving around in Mike's van. <laughs> oh, okay. oh, that's fun. That's probably yeah. like, you know, the old days or something when you're younger. You know, I know, I, when I was younger, I was first class all the way. But now I get in the van with a bunch of sweaty old guys and <laughs> drive to the next venue. Yeah, <laughs> that's fun. I, I could I could talk to you for hours. You've made it 
made me feel very comfortable. I guess I guess we've said whatever you wanted to, whatever contact you needed to make, and and I'm really glad. I I'm so glad that you read the book and understood the book, and it had a per you know a a personal. Um, I what's a different word than effect, but it had an impact on you in a very personal way. And um, yeah, it really did because it gave me a lot of parallels. It made me think: Why does one person end up the way they end up, and why did I end up the way I ended up? There was a point where you had called your mother, and you were about ready to just pack it in and just give up, and she said don't give up, keep going. If I called my mother up, she would say, well, you should have stopped a long time ago. You know, and I see, I look at the differences in families and it, that's, that's the way it goes, you know? You know, and a lot of times my mom might've done that, but for some reason in some divine moment, she said just the right thing she needed to say for me. (laughs) Thank you, Carol. I look forward to seeing you. Um, Yeah. In person, your shining, beautiful hair. Oh, that would be great. And I hope to get to talk to you again sometime. It would be wonderful. Yeah. Okay. That sounds great. Have a great tour. Thank you. Bye. Bye.